Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Howdy, folks. I hope your summer is going well. I can't complain about too much around here. Summer seems like an ideal time ahead of planning season, which is coming up fast. For today's topic, which is pricing, this will be of interest to everyone on your marketing, sales, and executive team, so don't be shy about sharing it with your colleagues. Now, let's jump right into it. Today, my guest is Mark Stiving. He is the chief pricing educator and founder at Impact Pricing and also the host of the Impact Pricing Podcast. Mark, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Hey, thanks, Chris. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I know it is. So you and I had a brief conversation the other day, and we're trying to package this up for life science marketers who's selling things from uh, large, high-dollar instrumentation all the way down to consumables. How? Let's start out with what is the problem you see with pricing that people generally run across? Like, what gets them in trouble? Yeah, let's talk about pricing in general first, and then I'm happy to jump in yeah. and apply this to life sciences as, as much as we can. Yeah. The single biggest problem that companies have in terms of pricing is the fact that they don't understand the value of their products. Now, many companies, if you're going to build a hardware product, and most life sciences companies are building hardware products, many companies end up doing what's called cost plus pricing, where they say, how much is it going to cost me to build this? I need my 50 points of margin or 100 points of margin, whatever it is. And that's how they set their price. That has nothing to do with what the market is willing to pay you. It's really an arbitrary number that your CFO came up with and said, here's the margin we want. Let's go price it that way. And what we really need to be doing is thinking about what's the value of our product. How do our buyers perceive the value of our product? And that's that's going to be the thing we're going to talk about a lot today. Yeah. So, I mean, going from the cost plus thing, obviously you want to make some margin. If your costs, are, if you can't get that margin, you have a different problem, I guess, right? And yeah, I think it's. And but you're talking really about there's an opportunity to get way more, possibly. Oh, absolutely. So think about it this way: you're going to build a piece of equipment, a piece of hardware. And you say, okay, it costs me $100 to build this. I want 100 points of margin. I'm going to sell it for $200. How much do you think it costs a software company to build the next unit of software they ship? Really close to zero. Right. And yet they don't charge two times zero, right? They charge 100 bucks or 10 bucks a month or some big number. And they do this because they're charging for the value of their product. Why hardware manufacturers think the value of their product is related to their cost, I don't know. I, actually, I can tell you why they think that. But in truth, we should be thinking just like software companies do. What's the value of my product to my marketplace? How much would they pay me for it? And so what kinds of things do you do to figure out your market value? I mean, everybody, most companies, when they're building a new instrument, they have a pretty good idea of what customers say they want but maybe we need to dig in a little deeper to find out what they were actually willing to pay. Yeah, that kind of brings us back to a conversation, part of the conversation you and I had last week, which is 
who are we talking about? You have to tell me who's going to buy the product. Because if you've got a scientist and they're not responsible for the budget and they just want the latest and greatest widget and tell me what it can do for me, that's not really value. We do have to make sure that scientist is happy and that scientist tells whoever the administrator is, yes, I really need this and, and you're going to have to give this to me. But we need to understand from the perspective of who's buying it, what does value mean to them? And so value is... Um, what can I do with this thing that I couldn't do without it? That's really the key. And how do we go about figuring out what that value is to them? I mean, they might say, I, I need the thing that can do this and perhaps only yours does this or somebody else does it almost as well, but they have some other things <laughs> and we have to juggle what, yeah. Fabulous uh, question because it drives me right to one of the key points I always make when I'm teaching value to people. And that is that most of the time when people are making a decision to buy something, they make two different decisions. The first decision is, uh, will I? Will I buy something in the product category? And then after they said, yes, I will buy something, then they go on to say, okay, which one will I buy? And they're shopping different alternatives. When people are making a will-I decision, price isn't driving that decision. Something else is. Another way to say that is they're not price sensitive when they're making a will-I decision, right? Do I need the next spectrum analyzer that's, that does all this awesome, amazing stuff? Yes or no? I mean, I may need it, I may not need it. And as soon as I say yes, now I'm comparing two or three different manufacturers of these instruments to say, okay, which one does it better? Which one is worth it? And those are two very different value conversations that we have with our clients. The first one is, what's the value of solving the problem that you have? So do you have a problem? Why do you need this new spectrum analyzer? Why do you need this new piece of equipment? And, and once we understand what that problem is, now we could start talking about what's, that, what's the dollar value to the company, what's the value to your career. There are different value aspects we can look at for solving the problem. But then we say, well, I'm going to buy yours or your competitors. Well, okay, what's different between the two? I'm going to assume mine is better for a second, but it's also more expensive. Is it worth it? Well, it's worth it if the differentiation does something for the buyer or the customer that has value. So now what's the value of the differentiation? And it's the exact same question about, will I buy it? I don't wanna solve the problem. Why did you build that feature? Why is your feature better? You built it because it solved a problem for your customers. What was the problem and do they care? How much is that worth to them? Yeah, so a couple of things there. One, there's some research that has to go into that even before you build that feature to know whether you can capture that value that and and what that value really is for that thing and then going back to the I'm going to buy a product in this category which one how do I differentiate it and those differentiators obviously have a huge effect on price probably once it gets down to it yes so I like, I always, always, always put myself in the shoes of the buyer who's making a decision. And how are they making that decision? 
when we start thinking about differentiators and should I make my product different than my competitors? The answer should be yes, by the way. But how do I decide how much different, what should I put in, what shouldn't I put in? The question always comes down to, can you find me a set of buyers? Let's call it a market segment for the sake of argument. Can you find me a market segment who values this capability and would be willing to pay me something for it? And if we could find that market segment, then it's worth putting this feature in for that market segment. One of the problems companies often have, and we're, I feel like I'm going down to way too many paths at once with you, Chris, but one of the problems companies often have is we want to build one thing and sell it to everybody. And, and that's nice. It scales. But the problem is everybody's not the same. And if we can truly understand the problems of different market segments and build products for those segments and communicate the problems that we're solving for those segments, we become much, much more effective at, at building products and marketing products. Yeah, that's a whole different marketing conversation. <laughs> and maybe this is related. I want to go back to another thing you said, like there's value for a company, perhaps there's also value for the person's career <laughs> and many other angles or ways to slice that possible sale up. Do you have recommendations on how to find what's important to each individual buyer and push the value button that way? Yeah. So l let me break that up into two different chunks. The answer into that into two chunks. First chunk is when we're selling value, there's somebody inside the, the customer's company that cares about dollars, right? Why would, why would I invest these dollars for that? And, and I'm going to use a hospital, and I only use that because the example is probably the same as the scientific example in certain locations or certain labs, but, but it's something that we can all relate to for a second. In a hospital, there's a hospital administrator, and that hospital administrator cares a ton about how much more money are we going to make or save if we use this piece of equipment instead of that piece of equipment or this process. Or, and so somebody cares a lot about dollars. But when you go talk to a doctor in the hospital, they really don't care about dollars. They care about something else. So what else do they care about? They might care about things like how effective is it at curing my patients? How much faster do my patients get cured? So, so there are things that really matter to them. And that's, how, that's what they value. Just like if you're going to be uh, selling a product to a scientific community, even if they don't care about dollars, they might care about uh, publications. They might care about being able to do cutting-edge research that they couldn't do without this. Right? And so there are things that matter to them. Our job is to understand what matters to our customer. And when we're marketing or selling our products, we have to be putting the features in the format of the things our customers value. So what are they valuing? So now, back to the question that says, how do I find that out? Right? What is it that they value? What you could do is when you start talking with anybody, ask questions like, <clears throat> what problems do you think this might be able to solve for you? What are the types of things it might be able to do for you? And we're gathering this list of them if we possibly can. And once we get this list, we say, okay, out of this list, which one of these is the most important to you? And they give us something, doesn't matter what it is. And we say, great, how do you measure that today? And hopefully they've got some way to measure it. And we say, okay, what, what are you hoping that it becomes 
in the future, right? If we could solve this for you, what do you think that measurement's going to come to? And they give us a new number. And what we're doing now is we're quantifying value for individual buyers and the things that really matter to them. Right. This is, this is where selling and marketing really shine. Yeah. And even in the case of a scientist who's in the places where I've worked, let, let's say in the last place I worked, publication was the thing for many of the people who were buying our particular product line. That still means dollars. I mean, more publications is more grant dollars sooner, right? And then maybe there's a way to ask, what's the typical size of your grant? I'm sure they're very focused on the scientific results they want, but they also have a career and a job and recognition and so on. But the monetary aspect is gathering grants. Well, and, and we could put this in terms of grant dollars for them, right? How big is your typical grant today? What do you think the people are doing a great job? How much are they getting for grants? Right. What do you think it would take to get from where you are to where they are? We're hitting their value points. And that information is knowable. Most grants are public information. You could probably figure that out and ask them, who do you admire in this field? Or who are the leaders in your line of research? <laughs> Did you know their grants are this much bigger than yours? Right. Great questions. Yeah. Yeah. If you had mm -hmm. that, if you were armed with that information, that might be the thing. So well, go ahead. I was just going to say what I, what I love about what you just mentioned, though, is we have to understand what it is that our customers value. And it isn't a feature of your product. Right. One of my favorite lines is nobody cares about your product. Nobody cares about your features. They only care about what your product and your features can do for them. Right. And what we have to do is understand what it is that they really want. What do they really value? And show them how our product helps them get to that. Right. In our previous conversation, well, I asked you this question, like, what drives companies to come to you? Like, how do they recognize or how do pricing problems present themselves? Because they don't, if they're making money on their thing, that there has to be some trigger to say, we think we could make more money or what? So what is it that people recognize? Yeah, that is such a hard question. Without bragging, I would bet 90% of companies could um, dramatically increase profitability if they understood pricing and value better from their marketplace. But... What is it that prompts someone to say, hey, we need to do something different? I would say usually the answer to that question is an executive. Oftentimes it's the CEO or president of a company says, you know what? We are not capturing our fair share of value, right? Think about how much value we're delivering into the marketplace, how much value our customers are getting from our products. And we're just not getting what we deserve as part of that. So let's see if we can figure out how to do more. And usually it's going to be something like that that drives it. Sometimes it's somebody's been given a directive that says you have to go raise prices. And now they're trying to figure out, well, how do I raise prices? One of the scariest things in the world to do, right? And, uh, and so now yeah. they want someone like me to help hold their hand and guide them through, okay, what's going to happen? And how should you do this? And how should you communicate it? And, and by the way, you don't have to raise prices across the board. What we have to do is we have to raise prices on the places where it makes sense to raise prices. And how do we figure that out? 
So it's a pretty challenging issue. But I would say everybody should call me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, and I know. I mean, pricing, even as an individual, it's a scary thing. And I'm sure for companies, maybe they look around and they have some sense of what their competitors' margins are and say, how come we're not making that much money? We don't think our costs are that different or whatever it is. And they say, all right, we need to change. And it is scary because you think some people are going to go away, right? They're going to they're gonna leave you and say, no, you know, I'm used to. Well, so, so first off, some people might leave you and you have to say, well, was that a bad thing? Because if you've got really tight margins, if you could double your margins and you lose 10% of your customers, who cares? You just made so much more profit by that one decision. So thinking of losing individual customers, we don't want to lose customers. Don't get me wrong. I love customers. Right. But I love profit even more. Yeah, exactly. What about different pricing models? If someone wants to just change how they charge for something. Yeah, probably the most common thing we're seeing nowadays is companies who used to sell products, I like to call them traditional companies, are trying to figure out how do we get into a subscription type business. Probably the single best or biggest transition you're seeing. Every software company is trying to do that today if they haven't already done it. A lot of hardware companies are trying to figure out how do we do this today. And um, pricing models are interesting, they're challenging in a lot of ways, but, uh, but they're so valuable because subscription companies typically have, let's call it a 10 times multiplier on valuation over non-subscription companies. If you think about the stock market or, or how the company's valued. So it makes a ton of sense to go subscription. Now, how does a hardware company go subscription? Obviously in life sciences, you can subscribe to the consumables, but that doesn't feel big mm -hmm. enough, right? It doesn't feel like it's really the business. How do you get someone to subscribe to your instrumentation? And I would say, let's, let's step back first and look at Porsche. And if you, you guys know that you could subscribe to a Porsche today. I did not know so that. So for $3,000 a month, if you live in Atlanta, this is true. And it's true in a few other cities now too. For $3,000 a month, you can drive whatever Porsche you want. And by the way, on Sunday, when you want to switch to the 911, you go back and you switch to the 911. And on Friday, when you want to drive to the mountains to go skiing, you go back in and get a Cayenne. And, and they'll cover all the maintenance and they actually cover the insurance. All you have to do is gas. That's it. Right. Pretty cool. It, now that's subscribing to a product, to a hardware product. What they did was they said, well, what are the true benefits that people are looking for when you buy and drive a Porsche? What are the pain points people have when they buy and drive a Porsche? Could we put together an entire program that delivers the benefits, maybe even more benefits, and takes away some of the pain points. And you could do the exact same thing with instrumentation if you thought hard enough about it, right? What are people really buying when they're buying your instrumentation? They're really buying the ability to do these tests. So could I sell them X number of tests? Could I sell them per month or per week or for whatever it happens to be and not actually sell them the instrument? I've just parked my instrument there and they can run this number of tests. Right, and I think in the clinical space that actually happens. They put an instrument in and you pay based on the number of tests you're running, which is probably, I don't know this for a fact, so people can 
email me and let me know. Consumables are a big part of that. I mean, there are consumables to run those tests, but you're not even buying the consumables. You're just saying for every test you run, it's going to cost you this much. We will deliver the consumables and maybe it works. And so maybe there's a way to do that outside of the clinical space. Yeah, I'm sure there is. If you think about it hard enough, there are ways that you can subscribe to many different things. I think this idea of subscribing based on the number of tests with consumables makes a ton of sense if you don't have your consumables locked into your piece of equipment. Right? If by if you if the right. customer has to buy your consumables, then it's not that big of a deal to go subscription because the customer has to buy your consumable anyway. You can charge really high prices for that once they bought your piece of equipment. But if they get to choose between different vendors of consumables, now selling a subscription ties in my consumables with my piece of instrument. Brilliant, brilliant thing to do. Yeah, I think that's a good idea for a lot of companies that are selling consumables that are interchangeable. But so I want to dig a little bit deeper on that. Like, how do you position the value of that other than somehow they're going to think they're going to get a better deal, more value by just staying with you and knowing that you're going to hand, take care of some headaches for them? Hey, do you have an answer for that? How are they thinking about it? Sure. Yeah. It's, so there's a couple different things that are going on. You need to step back and say, what are the real pain points and benefits that my clients are trying to get from my piece of equipment? First off, there's a, the financial pain point that always happens. If I have to buy a piece of instrument up front, usually I've got a capital expenditure that I have to depreciate over time. And, and that's a huge pain to everybody. I'd rather be spending operating expenses, right? I'd, maybe. And so an operating expense is a monthly bill instead of a big capital expense up front. And now once I've got my operating expenses, I've got maintenance problems. How do I know it's going to break? Who's going to come in and maintain it? If you're selling me the number of tests, I happen to know that you're going to come maintain it because if it can't work, you can't sell me tests. So we've got a maintenance issue that's being solved. There may be tuning or calibrating that has to happen that you're going to take care of for me. What are the problems that they currently have that you could address with a subscription, that you could address with services that you're giving to your customer? In that model, you're not even buying the instrument. We're back to fully subscription, use this thing. We're delivering consumables. Obviously, there's some minimal cost because the company has to cover eventually the cost of the instrument. But hopefully, because you've gotten rid of that big upfront expense and the hassle of depreciation and, and everything, they all they know is the thing shows up, I run tests, and... <laughs> You are motivated to come fix it because if it's not working. No tests. Yeah, no money. No money. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, one of the things that often happens, especially for hardware companies, by the way, this is also true with software companies who have upfront implementation fees. We often want to charge our customers for those because we want to make sure we cover our costs. And that is one business model. But I have to say a much better business model, if you, if you have the guts, the knowledge, and a CFO who's willing to let you do this, is not get those upfront costs. Instead, charge a higher monthly fee because we want to get parts of that. And essentially what we're saying is we believe in our product. We know you're going to use it and love it and you're going to keep on using it. 
and you're going to keep paying us money. And by the way, over time, we're going to get way more money because you're subscribing than had you bought that piece of equipment. This shows good faith for us. It allows our buyers to get in quickly and they could say, yeah, that works for me or no, it doesn't. And so a month or two later, they say, yeah, I, I can't really use this. Go ahead and take it back. And that's okay because we can take it to another client and they're going to subscribe to it. It doesn't always have to be new equipment, especially if we're going to sell a subscription. Does it also increase the perceived value, that little higher price? Like you, when you have the guts to say that, like people must think, wow, this thing must really work. Does, do you think there's a component there? I, I absolutely think there's a component that says that company believes in their product. They believe it's going to work for us. And so I'm much more likely to go with it. Plus, if I'm being that risk averse and worrying about who believes and who doesn't believe, if somebody's going to charge me for the instrument up front, I know that they're trying to get their money up front. So they don't have to deliver. Here, here's a fantastic observation about subscriptions versus non-subscription business for a second. Believe it or not, in a subscription business, you don't care if a customer ever uses your, I'm sorry, non-subscription, you don't care if a customer ever uses your product. So if I pay you $100,000 for an instrument and I never ever use it, does that bug you? No. No. In the subscription world, it bugs you a lot because if they're not using it, they're not going to pay you and they're going to give it back. And so suddenly we as a business are focused on my customer's business. How are you running your business? Are there things I can do to make it work better for you? How can I make you more successful? Because as my customers use my product and become more successful, they love me more, they value my product more, they're likely to pay me more. It's such a better business model if we're willing to essentially internalize for ourselves the success of our customers. So the light bulb just went off in my head why I have all these friends whose titles involve customer success. <laughs> now I understand what they're doing, right? It, it's, <laughs> what do those guys do? Of course, you know, but... That's absolutely I, right. I, I didn't, so, so customer success never existed until subscriptions came along. And nowadays, if you think about what customer success people truly do well, there's three things that really matter in customer success. First, you've got to onboard customers quickly. So I want a customer to get the product and start getting value from it as fast as possible. So I can't have this long learning time, et cetera. So let me get them up to speed quickly. Second, I need to monitor that you're using the product, that you're getting value of it, out of it. I'm going to give you tweaks here and there, ways for you to get more value out of it. And then third, if I can get you a ton more value, I have the ability to upsell you into more capability, into more features. So I end up getting more money out of you, right? Not that it's a sales organization, but it's truly trying to figure out how do I get my customers more and more value because they've been so successful with my products. And in my head, I think I might've had some hesitance about subscription models. I hadn't really thought about it in life science, honestly, but, um, the idea that you could end up paying for things you're not using, I guess, would be my hesitation. But now, just like any other business, when you have a subscription customer, you become their partner. It's good for everybody, right? If you can support all your customers in that way, because you have a continued vested interest in their using your product, and then it builds a longer-term relationship, right? So... 
Absolutely. You build a much longer Reducing term turnover. Yep. So, so the lifetime value of a customer under subscription is probably much, much larger than had you sold them a piece of equipment. Right. And that's why I'm guessing, I'm still learning a lot of this stuff, um, valuations are higher for companies with subscriptions. There's, there's several reasons. One reason is the lifetime value of a customer is higher. Another reason is that at the beginning of the year, let's say January 1st, you probably already know where 70% of your revenue is going to come from, right? Because it's just going to be people that are already subscribed to my products. I, don't, I only have to go out and win 30% more revenue this year. It's much more recession-proof. Right. So when we have downturns, people tend to not unsubscribe. They might buy less from us, but they tend to not unsubscribe. They don't want to lose their capabilities or whatever it happens to be. So we're more recession-proof. There's lots of great reasons for it. Right. Now, I'm curious. I want to go back because I think there might be something to be learned from the, the Porsche model. Like, what is the pain point they're solving when I can drive a 911 Monday through Friday and then jump in a Cayenne on Friday night and go to the mountains? You don't think that's fun? No, I, th I do think it's fun. I guess in, a, in my head, this is what I'm thinking. Like, I could have a Cayenne sitting in the driveway all week and a 911, but the Cayenne is not doing anything until Friday night. So, well, and you just it's bought my own personal Uber fleet, right? And you just bought $200,000 cars instead of. Right, right. You know, one hundred thousand dollar car essentially. So imagine you go buy a nine eleven. Uh, you're not going to buy a Cayenne, also. So you just buy a nine eleven. Right. That's the only thing you get to drive. So now when you go to the mountains, you're like, well, I don't want to take my nine eleven up to the mountains. Right. I got to rent a car. Rent and, a car. Whatever. You know, it's not going to be as nice. I'm not going to look as cool. Whatever it happens to be, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so I can't say that so, there's a specific yeah. pain point other than it's a desire that people probably have to be able to drive different cars. They just never thought about it. They've never expressed it to you, but truly it's there. Cause, cause you and I both know it'd be, it would be a lot of fun to be able to drive different Porsches, different days of the week if we wanted to. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And I'm thinking, I mean, do you know that the cost is $3,000 a month? I'm just trying to figure out like, what would it cost me to own two Porsches all I year long? I do know that it is $3,000 a month. And that's for the most expensive plan. They have a plan that's only $2,000 a month if you're willing to take low-end Porsches. <laughs> right. If there's <laughs> such a thing. Right. I'm still paying $24,000 a year continuously for a car. Which... For the right to drive a really cool car and maintenance and insurance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. I just thought maybe it'd be helpful for people to think about what kinds of things. But I think our conversation about subscriptions and instrumentation and consumables is really going to open some people's eyes up where the value is, how it simplifies business, better customer relationships. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So a lot of these concepts that you and I are talking about are in my new book. I just got to give it a quick plug. Uh, yeah, I have a do book that. out. It's called Win, Keep, Grow, How to uh, Price and Package to Accelerate Your Subscription Business. And, and it's, it's really just a book of all the ahas I've had as I started studying subscriptions, because the things that you just said, oh, that's what customer success is for. You're like, yeah, I, I had that exact same aha a couple years ago. You're like, wow. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about the difference between subscriptions and traditional business models. Yeah. One of the guys I play water polo with, his nickname is Success. And I just figured this whole thing out recently. Like the coach calls him, hey, Success. <laughs> then I find out what his job title is. Now I understand the whole thing. So that's great. If you send it to me, I'll put a link to your book in the show notes for this episode when it comes out. And Mark Stiving, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, thanks, Chris. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Think of how many things, even as individuals, we are buying on subscription. And how do those companies keep us signed up? If it's Netflix, it's by suggesting things they think you'll enjoy. And they invest a lot into producing more of it to keep you coming back. If you enjoy this podcast, please suggest it to someone else that likes to learn about marketing and the life sciences. I'll be back with another episode soon. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>